They've watched Citizen Kane a combined 200 times. Elliot's first words were, I personally thought the use of Dutch angles was derivative in the 400 blows. In Nathan's favorite historical figure is Fritz Lang. Now they're bringing that snootiness to you with Magellan's at the Movies. Folks, welcome to the Magellans at the Movies podcast. Uh, many of you remember from our last episode that uh, I had my brother on as a guest with me and Shadow. Because of the overwhelmingly positive response that we got for that episode, I've fired Shadow and brought on Nathan as my new co-host. So Nathan, welcome to the show. It's great to have you as uh, my movie-watching partner and uh, you, you sort of remember how this goes from last time, so what, uh, do you have any any thoughts to, to ingratiate yourself to uh, our viewers now? They used to be just my viewers. Yeah, I think I'm going to stop. I, we try, we're trying to have Elliot do the intro because I kept saying it, but now I'm thinking maybe I'll just get the first words from now on because I've had enough of your nonsense, Elliot. I predict that those first words will mainly be all right. Yeah, I, I, I'm just very inspired by Matthew McConaughey from Dazed and Confused. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. All right, that's enough Enough banter. Enough Yay! banter. I think, <laughs> I think you, um, you kind of foreshadowed what we're doing today when you said howdy as your first words. We're... We're going to Rootin' Tootin', Texas. <laughs> Although this is a Texas w- with not much rootin' or tootin', I would say. It's kind of a depressing Texas. Well, there's the toot toot of gunfire. Yeah, there is quite a bit of gunfire. But yeah, so we're doing... Elliot got to choose because he was forced to watch mainstream movies, so he had to do something pretentious to uh, ease his soul. So he chose, actually not that pretentious of a film, in my opinion, but he chose Hell or High Water, which is a 2016 film uh, by David McKenzie. It was kind of a surprise awards darling. It didn't win anything, but it was a surprise because it it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and best film editing as well as jeff bridges was nominated for best supporting actor it didn't win any in any of those categories but um it was a really small movie so i think it was kind of a surprise that it picked up even just those nominations especially from cbs films i didn't even know cbs had a films branch much less one that had enough money to run an oscars campaign for a film but uh, yeah, Hell or High Water co- follows two brothers on a bank robbing spree in Texas and two policemen following them. It's a pretty simple story. Um, Elliot, you picked this movie. You like this movie. What? Uh, let's get it started. What do you What do you like about this movie? What What do you like? What do you dislike? What are your thoughts? 
uh, I like quite a bit about this movie. This movie is one of those ones that uh, falls into a surprisingly crowded category of movies that we picked up out of a $5 DVD box at Walmart, like really late at night, and then went back home uh, to watch it. And uh, I didn't love it at first, probably because I was really tired when I watched it. But this is definitely one of the movies that I like more the more that I watch. Because I think that there's a lot in this movie that is easy to miss on the first viewing. So I think it's a very simple plot, uh, sort of a timeless plot about uh, cops and robbers, essentially, uh, and the chase between them. But And it does all of that very well. Both sort of teams, I think, are very compelling for different reasons. Uh, you, the movie makes you want to root for both of them, despite the knowledge that really only one of them can win. But I also think that there's a lot of really well-crafted atmosphere in this movie. It does a really good job of portraying a sort of... a society that's, like, caught between modernity and what's the opposite of modernity tradition the past yeah sure like it's very much a window into a culture that i think a lot of us don't really unless you live in it obviously a lot of us don't really understand or at least aren't exposed to very often because you have this uh very like justice-oriented citizenry. I mean, they literally form a po- a, an impromptu posse in this movie. Uh, everyone's everyone's armed at all times. Uh, they've got all the sort of small-town charm of uh, Southern America that's sort of being chipped away at by uh, encroaching corporations that are squeezing people dry. I I really like the transition shots when it's just panning across landscapes of nature and then like sometimes there will be oil rigs, but more often than not there will be like fields full of rusted out cars or just rows upon rows of billboards advertising low mortgage rates and low interest loans and stuff. It reminds me very much of pictures of depression era America, especially ones done by photographers. Uh, I I should really remember the name. It's like Herbert Walker or something. Don't quote me on that. But he was a photographer who took pictures in depression era America with the sort of specific goal of trying to tell a story about what was happening and why it was happening. And I think that this is an extremely long-winded way of me saying that I think this movie does a good job of making that kind of cultural criticism while also telling a story that is more than competently done. There's a lot of really good, subtle moments of characterization for all of the main cast 
not a bad performance in the bunch, but, uh, and there's more that I, that I'll talk about, but I, I've definitely been talking for a while now, so <laughs> you can say something now. Well, I'd just like to echo, I wrote down in my notes that, yeah, I love all the shots of them driving a place and it's just the scenery. And then in the middle of the scenery, yeah, a billboard that says debt relief, call this number, get, you know, a loan. Do you need help with this thing that I think it very much communicates an idea of just a disillusionment with, you know, sort of the American dream and the like idea, the like romanticized version of America. I recently watched The Grapes of Wrath and that has a very similar vibe to this movie, even though that one took place right after the depression. And this movie obviously takes place in somewhat modern America. There's a similar vibe of, you know, small towns being screwed over by the big guy, by the banks, by the companies. And yeah, so I really like this. I The first time I saw it, I thought it was pretty good. I was kind of nervous to rewatch it because I felt like it might be a bit more cliche and I might not like it as much now that I've seen more movies of this sort of type. But outside of a few things, I... I still thought it was really good for a lot of the reasons that you're saying. I think just the vibe of the movie is so much is so much what you were talking about, that struggle between tradition and the modern life and where it leaves kind of the common man, you know, and Jeff Bridges, he's having a bad time. It really seems like there's no place for a geezer like him, you know, I guess you could say there's no country for, uh, for all... <laughs> I, I had to get one on you because this, uh, this film is somewhat similar to Elliot's favorite movie of all time. So I had to make a no country, had to make a hilarious no country for old men joke there. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. But yeah, just it, to talk about some other things, though, I agree. I think all the performances are really fantastic. I'm not, I think Chris Pine is really playing against somewhat his type, that he's not just the good looking leading man in this, that instead he's playing, you know, someone who's been through some stuff and now he's just kind of begrudgingly trying to get this thing done and uh, Ben Foster as his brother is just crazy. Not a great brother, in my opinion. I'd say you're a better brother than him, personally, I think. <laughs> I'm just saying, if Ben, if he was my brother, I wouldn't be making a movie podcast with him, much less Robin Banks. Uh, that's funny. I was actually going to say <laughs> that their dynamic really reminded me of, of our dynamic because, because I'm always getting into fights at gas stations that you have to bail me out of. <laughs> Oh yeah, who who can who can forget all those times when we were in Arkansas where you started picking a fight with some fellas in a car and I had to come save you. <laughs> um no, and then Jeff Bridges and oh shoot, I should know his name. I saw it so many times. The other gentleman playing his partner, they're really fantastic. And something that I noted, I want to wonder what you think about this is it seemed to me almost like the two pairs were almost the mirror image of each other 
that where Chris Pine's character was kind of, there was kind of a, a begrudging love for his brother that I kind of had the same vibe between Jeff Bridges and his partner, that his partner was for the most part kind of annoyed with him. He's constantly making all these jokes about him being Indian and stuff. But underneath that, he was like, okay, I do, you know, somewhat care about him. So what do you think of that? Do you think, what do you think of the protagonists as I wrote in my notes, it seems to me almost like they're the mirror image of each other, that they're both, they're all four of them kind of in the same place, just on different sides of the same coin, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I would say that probably a lot of the irritation that um, Steve Gomez from Breaking Bad uh, displays with his partner uh, and vice versa is sort of surface level. I think that it's that they're I think that they seem a lot closer, actually, than uh Toby and whatever the other brother's name is. Um, Tanner. Sure, whatever. Uh, Just for an example, look at the different ways that each one reacts to their other half dying. Like when... uh, I'm just going to have to look up his name because I don't want to call him Steve Gomez from Breaking Bad. It's it's Gil Birmingham. Gil? Yes, Gil Birmingham. Is that the actor or the character? That's the actor. Okay, well, that's all right. Uh, when Gil dies, I think that, first of all, I think that death is really well done because it's an absolute gut punch. It comes out of nowhere. And the movie does a great job of sort of lulling you into a false sense of security and making you think that Jeff Bridges is going to be the one to die because he's always talking about going out in a blaze of glory and not wanting to be retired. And so the obvious or the easy route to take would be to have him be the one to die. And maybe for more astute viewers than myself, they saw the switcheroo coming. But for me, it took me totally by surprise. And even absent that surprise, I think that it's a very impactful death. But the way he like, just sort of falls over him, and that little, like, not even sob, just like a whimper that he makes as he pulls him out of the line of fire is absolutely heartbreaking. Whereas, when Tanner dies, assuming that's the Ben Foster one, Toby's (laughs) sitting in a bar, like, impassively staring. Because I think that Toby understands that his brother is not a good person. I mean, he's a murderer, uh, and just like Jeff Bridges says at the end, which is one of my favorite scenes of the whole movie, he was never in this for any kind of altruistic uh, reason, uh, as altruistic as altruistic as making money for your children can be. I'm I'm not saying it's bad, but you know it's not exactly uh, a a, mo- a a an act of great humanitarianism but for the brother it's re- it's just the thrill of it and the fun of it mm-hmm. so i think that i think that the the bond between the two teams is much different and the 
composition of the two teams is very different. Yeah, I did watching it this time, obviously knowing that Gil ends up dying at the end. There is a moment when they're driving in the car and he says something about wanting to retire and then get a fishing boat in Texas, which knowing that he dies made me laugh because there's a great Simpsons joke when uh, <laughs> where it's the uh, stupid Arnold Schwarzenegger ripoff movie. And the his partner is like saying all the things he's like in one week my daughter graduates and I retire and we just bought a boat and the boat's called the Never Die or something like that and then he dies like two seconds later so uh, that kind of made me laugh and I I think you could sort of see that Gomez was or that Gil was going to end up dead by the end of it but I I think it's hard to knock the movie for as I don't want to say cliche, but as simple as it is, because it does accomplish what it's trying to do so well, right? Like it's not reinventing the wheel. There's nothing in this movie that you haven't ever seen before. You just might not have seen it done this well before, I think is one of the things that I find really interesting about the movie. But I have one specific question for you. And this kind of ties to what we talked about last week with Captain America Winter Soldier and just talking about genres and what it means to kind of fit into a genre. So do you think this movie is a neo-Western, firstly? And then if it is, which I think it's a neo-Western, if it does, what do you think are the attributes that makes this a neo-Western or like a good neo-Western? Uh, I would say that this fits pretty snugly in the category of neo-westerns, which is a genre that I'm quite fond of. So it's definitely got the aesthetics and the visual language of a neo-western, fairly stark, not oversaturated or undersaturated. Its color palette is pretty, I don't know, restrained. The violence is very, is sort of sparing like there's not a lot of it but when it does happen it's extremely impactful and hard-hitting more than that neo-westerns typically kind of interrogate uh i'm gonna break out some real pretentious english major language here interrogate the idea of a western and sort of not necessarily deconstruct it but flip it around to look at it from different angles because in traditional westerns there's always very clear-cut kind of morality you've got the rugged outsider uh fighting for justice on his own terms you know frontier justice whereas in neo-westerns those kinds of archetypes uh, both in character and concept, are typically complicated. So as you see in this movie, with who are ostensibly our outlaws with hearts of gold enacting their own justice, they their justice is A, on both sides, at least to some degree, fairly selfish, uh, or at least motivated by self-interest, and B, not exactly just. Uh, it's a lot more messy than just 
there's the guy with the black hat who shot my paw. Now I've shot him. That means justice. It's much more complicated yeah. than that. And that's just one aspect of it. But <laughs> I don't, I, I'm I'm very aware that I, I'm coming off. I'm revealing myself for the snob that I really am. So uh, I'm going to stop talking now. Well, I think that's you know that's why we do the more pretentious movies is so we can be pretentious, and then people who aren't pretentious just don't end up watching it. But I think that's especially apparent in the final scene of the movie when Toby has the conversation with Marcus that instead of there being a really neat sense of like justice and we've reached like a really nice happy point, I think there's a lot of tension in the scene depending on, right? Like you said at the beginning, we follow both the cops and the robbers. So just in pure nature of we're watching a show or a movie and the protagonist is who we root for, we're rooting for both sides to win. So in some version, we're like, Hopefully they're all happy and they all get nice things. But then the final scene is very much, you know, neither of them can really be happy while the other one is happy. You know, Marcus can't really be happy knowing that a person who he attributes some of the guilt for the death of his partner to is getting away with something. And Toby really can't be all that happy living with what he kind of caused. And so they're both left with a really unhappy feeling that you don't get when, you know, the man with no name saunters out of town after killing the bad guy. You don't get left with a really happy feeling of, you know, what a nice little bow. You get left with a really uncomfortable feeling of, I don't really want either of them to be happy because I think it, you know, requires one of them to be dead. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bummer. It's a it's a bit of a bummer of a movie in that respect, I'd say. That's why I like it so much. But yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, think, no that, I think that you're right on target there. And that scene actually does represent another complication of the typical Western formula. Because what you would expect in a more typical Western that follows a similar structure is that there's a last meeting between the cop and or the the lawman and the outlaw and maybe the outlaw gets away maybe he doesn't but there's always that like uh moment of grudging admiration where they come to some sort of accord and maybe like the outlaw has escaped from the lawman once and for all and there's like one final shot of the of the lawman like uh realizing that he's been duped and just laughing or something like that but we don't get that yeah in this movie because I think that neither of them can really be fit into as comfortable categories as lawmen and outlaws. Obviously that's what they are on the surface, but the outlaw with the heart of gold or the person who's supposed to be the outlaw with the heart of gold, like I've already said, uh, is being motivated mainly by self-interest. His actions cause death and suffering Whereas uh, the lawman is a custodian, essentially, of the system that has ground his mother into, into dust and put him in this situation. And Gil 
makes a few comments about the banks are the people who the banks are doing these things, squeezing people out of their homes and out of their livelihoods, but they have been tasked with the protection of those banks, which is which is another element of the neo-Western, that complication of the easy dichotomy between good and evil, law and, um, I don't know, anarchy. Yeah. Well, and I think that's especially evident in when Marcus goes to pick up the files or whatever, and it turns out that those guys at the cafe and the waitress at the cafe didn't give up Toby. They like, even when they were shown a picture of Toby and surely they remembered Toby, uh, they were like, Oh, that wasn't the guy that there's a sense of community, even in right. The fact that Toby represents, you know, the outlaw, the common citizen still connected more with the outlaw than the lawman which I think is another element of not just the neo-Western, but just more modern Hollywood is moving the lens away from purely good guys into the outsider that people connect with more because they feel like the system's corrupt. And, you know, this movie is making that same case that the banks are just screwing over everyone. So why would you root for the people who are helping the banks root for these other two, you know, these two good old boys trying to help things. But then that's complicated even further by the fact that they, right, end up murdering citizens in such a brutal fashion. Like you said, I love the death of Gil because it is so sudden, but all of the death in the movie is extremely sudden. Like, and it's very much not, like there's no slow-mo, there's no weird romantic thing. It's just boom, they're dead. And then the movie kind of moves you away while you want to kind of sit in that and be like, okay, no, that was kind of whack. Like someone died, someone got brutally injured there. That is not good. But yeah, I think that's another element of the neo-Western and something I like about this movie. It absolutely is. I I already touched on this a little bit that the violence is very, there's not a lot of it, but it's very impactful and very brutal. Uh, There's, and it's, it definitely, if you watch enough Westerns and enough Neo-Westerns, and I, I definitely think I have, you will notice that this kind of violence exists as a direct response to the violence in Westerns, where you would call that kind of thing you wouldn't really call that kind of thing violence. You would call it action, you know? Mm-hmm. It's much more choreographed, much more staged. Uh, we sort of mentioned in when we talked about Star Wars uh, and its similarities to the Westerns, there's the extremely overblown death throws that people go through. You know, they <laughs> fling themselves to the ground. Their arms are flailing all over the place. Whereas in Neo-Westerns, like No Country for Old Men, and this, it's just a splash of blood, a body is horrifically disfigured, and then a life is lost, and all the lives that it affected have been, if not outright ruined, then darkened in some way. And it really, it does not want to romanticize the violence the way that Westerns really did in their time. Which is not to say that 
like westerns or that neo westerns make westerns bad because I think there's a place for both of them. But I think one of the strengths of this movie and neo westerns is just looking at it from another angle. And I think that's what's so amazing about film as we move forward is the continual subversion and new and creative directors taking an idea or a genre or a cliche and flipping it and being like, what do we see about humans when we twist it in this way? And this movie is an example of that, of these kind of cliches and these tropes being flipped and twisted. And you end up with something that's, I think, very interesting, very philosophically interesting and just interesting I think in just a general, like I'm a human being and I find this compelling. Well, I think that the movie is more asking questions than it is making statements. It's Mm. asking what happens when these two vastly different cultures collide and one begins to slowly but surely obliterate the other. What are people forced to do what are the kinds of justifications for that and even outside the realm of culture and like anthropology almost there are more philosophical questions posed especially in the last scene about what kind of responsibility toby had for the actions of his brother because he clearly was not thrilled that his brother had shot those people in the bank, but it's not like he said, okay, stop. We, this has gone too far. It's over. He, he pressed on. Yeah. And he let his brother ride away knowing that his brother was going to right take a gun to kill people. He wasn't taking a gun to go shoot at some deer or something. Toby knew what his brother was about to do. And he didn't say, no, we can't do that because he was still, he had decided that his plan and his, the future of his family was worth more than this moral failing, maybe, which is a, a really thorny thing to for the movie to leave viewers to wrestle with, I think. It is. All right. I don't really have any other, I mean, thoughts. I think, you know, I'm a, I really like the cinematography. We already said it, but especially the opening shot, I just, the neo-Western is just so much an unemotional genre that it's just kind of showing you things and it's not maybe wanting you to get as invested, as emotionally invested as other movies. And so stuff like the opening shot, which is just this long tracking shot where it's not making any effort to call attention to stuff like when she try she goes to walk in and two robbers show up. There's no like zoom. There's no fancy thing. It's just like, Oh yep, that's happening. It's almost like a security camera that it's just showing the facts of this thing. And so I really like that. The cinematography of that, the music also, I, I thought the music was actually pretty good. Like very twangy, very, you know, depressing and, Texan. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, the music's very good. I think that there there's a lot of really good moments of characterization, especially with the brothers. Uh, the one example that immediately pops to mind is how Tanner reacts when Toby wakes him up. 
like the day when they're going to rob the last bank, he thrashes around and sort of like tries to fight back and it it immediately adds a layer to this character that wasn't there before where you see more about the kind of life that he's lived because that is not that is the reaction of a of somebody who has under, undergone serious trauma we've talked about how he was in prison for a long time it is not unthinkable that he was attacked or something maybe in the middle of the night but yeah that that kind of extreme reaction to being suddenly roused from sleep is a clear marker of some kind of trauma and i think all of that stuff is really well done this is just a really like i said this is just a really done well done movie even if you set aside the more thematic elements i think that this movie absolutely succeeds as a character-driven dance between two opposing teams, both of which are very compelling in their own right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the vast majority of the movie is just people talking in cars or people talking in places, and I found it very enjoyable. I love the scene where they go to get, (laughs) where they're at the restaurant getting T-bone steak, and their waitress is just so rude and short with them (laughs) and i find that kind of funny and just a lot of the scenes of right them robbing banks and the reaction of the people where they're like really you're robbing a bank that's crazy like this is so bizarre (laughs) that it's um it's very good also did you recognize the bank teller at the bank that tanner robs when he just like robs it on a whim. Yeah, she's from some Disney show or something. No, she's from Prey. Well, she's also from a Disney show. Okay, well, I recognized her at first because she was in a Disney show, and then I paid attention in the credits, and yeah, it's uh, Amber Mind Thunder from Prey. Wow, why didn't she bust out her axe and rope and just kill Tanner right on the right in the spot? Uh, that would have been a dope, uh, that would have been cool. I don't know if it really would have gone with the whole vibe of the film, but I it would have been surprising for me, at least. <laughs> it would have been unexpected. I would have, there are some things that a movie can do that I would respect, even as I hated it. I think that I would respect <laughs> that kind of late movie twist, uh, but I would abs- also hate it. Yeah. Okay, do you have any uh, other closing thoughts before we get into some some number ratings, number or nope. letter ratings? Nope. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I'll go first. Um, yeah, like we've already said, really solid movie, a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of stuff to think about. I enjoyed it. I'd say just as much as when I saw it the first time, picking it up for pretty much a whim, I think I might have been trying to see all the movies nominated for Best Picture in 2016 or 2017, whenever it was nominated. But yeah, really good, really solid movie. I think the only thing's kind of hampering it is it is, at the end of the day, somewhat a simple plot. And there are other neo-Westerns that I think I like more, No Country for Old Men being one of them. So... There's just some moments in the movie where 
kind of like I said with the Dark Knight, it's good. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, but it could be better. But this is still really good, so I'd give it a 7.9 out of 10. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't really have anything to add to what I've said already, as usual. If I had to level some criticism at the film, I would say that sometimes there are some scenes that feel like they could either be trimmed in length or removed from the movie entirely. None of them are necessarily bad or make the movie feel bloated. It's just... So, for example, the scene where Tanner plays poker and gets into a bit of a, uh argument with the one Comanche man, it's, it's all good stuff, uh, and it's a tense enough scene. There's not... It's just there's not really any point to it, I think. It doesn't add a whole lot to the movie. Uh, and also, I will agree that this... That there are other movies that I like more than this, none of which detracts from this movie. It's just... These are reasons why I, I'm not going to give it a perfect score, but I am going to give it a, a strong A-. minus. <clears throat> yeah, I figured you'd do that. <laughs> I really like this. I movie. just want to point out... I just want to point out that the last three movies we've done, so this, Captain America, and Goodfellas, have all been in the seven points, but I think it's been... My tone when discussing the films has been wildly disparate. Disparate? So I just want to highlight how (laughs) all over the place I can be with movie ratings, which I think is true of anyone, that it's hard to be 100% true, but I just find that funny. Elliot doesn't, which is why he's not saying anything. So moving on, (laughs) we got recommendations. Usually we don't ask if we had the same recommendation, but I thought there was an outside chance that we might today. Uh, And it turned out we did. So I had to pull an audible for mine. So Elliot, what was the movie that both of us were going to recommend? Both of us were going to recommend for this movie the Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which is a real mouthful of a title, but it's a movie directed by Ridley Scott, I believe? No, it's directed by the guy who's directing the uh, Ana de Armas Marilyn Monroe movie. It's really? like Anthony something. Oh, wow. Yes. I was way off base. Yeah, you were. He might have been a producer, though. So it's directed by that guy, um, it follows, as the title suggests, the assassination of Jesse James by Robert Ford. His courage in the matter is up for debate. But I can't speak to why Nathan thought of this movie. The reason I thought of it is, A, because the cinematography is done by Roger Deakins, who is probably the best working cinematographer. The performances are all really strong Oh my gosh. I can't believe. Who plays Jesse James? Isn't it? Brad Pitt. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, Casey Affleck plays Robert Ford. It's got Sam Rockwell as well. Um, All of them do a great job. The reason I picked it is because it is a neo-Western, so it's got that kind of messiness. It's got the sort of complications of the traditional black and white morality that you see in westerns 
especially as it relates to Robert Ford and his killing of Jesse James and how people sort of turn against him for that and why people identify more with the outlaw than they do with the guy who killed him. I won't give too much more than that away, but it's a really good movie. Like Hell or High Water, it's sort of looking at a society in transition from one way of life or another. If you've ever played Red Dead Redemption 2, the story is very similar to that uh, in more ways than one. Yeah, like there will be not even just plot story beats, but like there are some shots in this that you'll think, wow, Red Dead 2 definitely ripped this straight out of this movie. But it's lovingly so. So yeah, it's a really good movie, really well paced. And uh, I think that if you like this movie and if you want a movie that's a bit less pretentious and a bit more crowd-pleasing, I think that The Assassination is a good way to go. Yeah, I'd agree. Obviously, I was going to recommend it, so I agree with everything you said. And those are all the reasons why I was going to pick that movie. So the movie I changed to is Bonnie and Clyde, the original Bonnie and Clyde directed by Warren Beatty, Beatty, Betty, however you pronounce his last name. It's a movie about people robbing banks also. This one only follows Bonnie and Clyde, but it's just a it's a fascinating movie, much like this movie. I don't know if you could fully call it a neo-western, but it's very much built in the idea of a, the disillusionment of the general populace with America and with the systems of American justice and the systems of American just culture in general. And I read a really fantastic book. If you're a movie fan, I would recommend it to anyone called Pictures at a Revolution that talked about the best picture nominees of 1967 of the, which this was one of them. And so it's a fascinating movie. And if you're looking for another fairly simple story about people robbing banks that has a lot of deeper ideas underneath it, uh, you can't go wrong with this movie. I'm a big fan of it. It's super fun, super influential. And yeah, it's really cool. And more people should watch it, I think. That's a pretty good movie. All right, well, uh, any any closing thoughts? We I do want to make this announcement to all of our listeners. We're now we're now been listened to on six of the seven continents. We're just missing North America, surprisingly enough. We got Antarctica before North America. That's crazy. But no. That was hilarious. Six of the seven. You know, maybe people listening to the podcast would laugh at it more if you laughed at the jokes I tell, Elliot. I'll laugh when you say something funny. Gosh, dang it. That's such a high bar, though. There, see, that's uh, that's amusing enough. Dang it. All right, Elliot. Um, any other closing thoughts from you? Uh just I, I googled it and the photographer i was thinking of is walker evans not herbert walker mm, had walker you had half the name right that's true i also just want to say that it is my considered opinion that life is hard and full of disappointments yep i'd like to add on uh, rest in peace mikhail gorbachev oh Real yes legend. rest in peace him. 
we'll all be drinking to his memory tonight. Yep. It's mug night in Ames, so tonight I'll be uh, I'll be drinking in his honor for sure. 